2009 when I made my first trip to Kabul. And the reason for the trip is I was going to work on creating a more experiential middle school curriculum by showing an up-close view of life in a mysterious war zone, essentially. Uh, since 2001, when the U.S. went in to oust the Taliban, all we'd ever seen from America was through the media lens, and, and all that was war footage. And I had this feeling that there was actually more to this society that we weren't seeing, and until we could see it, we wouldn't be able to actually ever have a human connection. So after three weeks of exploring all the nooks and crannies of Kabul, along with my videographer colleague, Kelly Kanunin, and our guide, Najib, from museums and sports events to schools and shopping trips and just digging into everything, we covered a lot of ground. And with one day left to go, I asked Najib if he could find a family who would welcome our team over for a home-cooked meal. To me, having dinner with a family in their community is the cultural culmination of any social studies adventure. And my opinion is whether somebody's traveling for vacation or business or backpacking or just trekking through, there's just nothing like being around a family dinner table. It's where traditions and cultural dynamics provide kind of an intimate snapshot of daily life. And I think good conversations nourish just as much as the meal. So Afghans were actually known for their hospitality and Najib knew practically everybody. So finding a family to drop on shouldn't have been a problem. And uh, after a few moments of thought, followed by a quick phone call, Najib looked up and he gave us the nod and he said he's going to take us to meet a very special family, the Anwaris. And according to Najib, there was not an Afghan family that hadn't been impacted by decades of war. And the Anwari family, they've had more than their share of hard times. Uh, with five young children, they were tortured by the Taliban, escaped to live in a Pakistani refugee camp. One of the sons was lost to malnourishment and without enough money or food, like many other Afghans, they ended up using opium as a way to subdue pain and suppress hunger. So addicts now unable to afford rent, they bottomed out in this abandoned apartment building and that's that's when Najib met them. But the Anwaris, you know, they're hardworking people, apparently. And little by little, they'd been getting back on their feet. Uh, they had they got the help of a social worker, kicked their opium addiction, moved back to Kabul, where the dad works as a cook in a military hospital, and the mother works in a raisin factory. And together, I think Najib said their salary was about $5 a day. They had just enough money to rent this home that we were invited over to. And uh, while their story was definitely extreme, not all Afghans lived this close to the bottom, um, but I kind of respected Najib's idea to give this family the opportunity to host foreigners. Um, I mean, it could have been understandable to say, oh no, they certainly don't need to be burdened by entertaining guests and they're still living in pretty tough times. But, you know, people need opportunities to give of themselves. And Sometimes it's especially those at the bottom who need to uh, give to others and welcome them and take care of them. And, you know, it fortifies all of us that we're not always the victims. We all have something to give. So anyway, with Najib, we drove across town. Our car pulls up outside. Along the street, there's like a wall against the street, and there's this teenage girl waiting. So we get out of the car, and Najib introduces us to Karima. This is the Anwari's 14-year-old daughter, and she's got this big, infectious smile that just makes me smile, too, and this firm handshake. She looks each of us in the eye, and I'm just captivated right off the bat by this girl's energy, and even more so after learning how hard her 
relatively short life had been so far. Najib and Kelly and I, we trailed behind Karima. She led us down the sidewalk through a doorway. We crossed this dirt courtyard and into the Anwari home, which really was nothing more than a cement room with a ceiling caving in. No heat, no electricity, no water, no plumbing. But to them, this is the best home they'd had in years. And, and I could tell they were proud to invite us over to celebrate. Of course, I'm stifling my oh my God reaction, like how can people live like this? But Karima took the bags of food that Najib had brought and headed into this kitchen, quote unquote kitchen, which is like just a corner of the room with this tiny 18th century style looking stove, a few pots and pans. And I'm just watching Karima and her sister together uh, and they're peeling and cutting vegetables while um, her parents and Najib were catching up and chatting. And I'm just mesmerized by this girl. At 14 years old, Karima, she ran the household while the parents worked all day. She hadn't been in school since the fourth grade. And from cooking and cleaning and taking care of the children, these younger siblings that she has, she's like this middle-aged housewife. Yet somehow she's still this kind of funny, smart, and precocious teenager. And she just had this little hint of mischief in her eye that that I really liked. Anyway, when the meal was ready, the mother unfurled this giant plastic mat across the floor, set the plates along the edges. We all took our places on the pillow. And, you know, despite this grim setting of despair beyond us, you know, everything, all of that's just dissolved into the background. Our group engaged. We had lively conversation, just a delicious, warm meal, and the simple pleasures of the present moment. But I had this growing curiosity about Karima. Finally, I asked her, as I often do with young people that I encounter, on my travels, I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And, you know, even against the harsh realities of war and poverty, I believe claiming a dream out loud in front of an engaged audience, it's an empowering experience. And, you know, one never knows how the forces of the universe can change a trajectory, to be honest. But responses from kids, they rarely extend beyond, I want to be a teacher, a doctor, a police officer, things like that, because they're kind of the few professions that marginalize children's children were even aware existed. So I was kind of stunned when Karima emphatically declared, I want to be a TV news reporter. And I'm like, what? How did this dream come about? Like, what does she know about TV news reporting? Like, how does this, you know, 14 year old middle aged housewife who doesn't have much exposure to much know about a TV news reporter. So she explained in detail the day that she saw a woman from Switzerland who is obviously one of the many foreign journalists covering war news in Kabul. And she was standing there tall and holding a microphone and looking really important as she spoke, kind of surrounded by curious onlookers. This woman, according to Karima, she was just intelligent and poised, like this important communicator of information and knowledge. And Karima said, I want to be like her. And in my mind now, I'm just picturing this magical space that exists in the consciousness of young people, And it happens, the space happens just after they move past the simplicity of childhood, but they're still unjaded by adulthood. And it's in this space that they become aware that they're stakeholders in this larger game of life. And they start developing this desire to be heard. And it's regardless of logic or socioeconomics or even security, but in this magical space, all things are still possible in their minds. And this need to claim their identity, it becomes urgent, even if they have to rebel to do it. 
Their need is to claim that I am here. I exist. But the, the thing is, this magical space just doesn't stay open for very long. And then the rest of the adult world kind of sucks these kids up. So here I am, an American hearing this unfiltered passion from a girl living in such dire straits. And of course, my knee-jerk reaction is, you know, I got to find a program or I got to find a school or something or someone or anyone who could offer any sort of an opportunity to this girl because uh, she deserves it. And, you know, the gravity of the Anwari family situation, the poverty, the instability, just this chaos of war. They're, these people are barely off of their opium addiction here. I mean, this it's such a colossal situation. I had to be realistic. And I rack my brain just to come up with the smallest meaningful gesture that could somehow let Karima know that we believed in her dream. Like, that, yeah, you, you really are here. You really do exist. We, we hear you. But anyway, glancing down, I see Kelly's video bag where he keeps all of his camera equipment. And I catch this glimpse of a microphone sticking out. And I'm like, hmm, maybe Kelly and I could just help this girl, Karima, hold this space for a few more minutes. There's not much we can do, but... Just walking away was too painful. So after lunch, Kelly pulls his camera out of the bag and we gave Karima the first, you know, mock reporting assignment of her career. And she was going to report on the goings on of the day and a tour of her home and, and just for fun. We weren't even really going to record it, but just pretend. But Karima's eyes, just she just lit up when just touching the microphone and it, it just it just jolted her with with a, a charge. And I asked her, I said, hey, you know, do you want to do some practice before we actually do it? She just waved me off. No, no, no. She had this firm grip on the mic, head up, shoulders back, laser focus on the lens. And she just nails this report like a seasoned pro. And so weeks later, back at home, back in America, friend of a friend of a friend through my networks introduces me to this woman named Alyssa Bogos. And Alyssa was an American freelance filmmaker living in Kabul. And together I told her the story about Karima and we found this opportunity that it wasn't much but maybe would hold that little magical space open for a few months longer. So with the permission of the Anwaris and the logistical support of Najib, Karima, Alyssa and I started with started with a test video just to see how things went and Alyssa made arrangements to go visit Karima's house, have her do an introduction video and tour of her home. And from there what we did after she kind of passed that test we coordinated a series of video reports that would not only teach American students about life in Afghanistan, like the perfect addition to this curriculum, but it would further develop Karima's skills in reporting and, you know, kind of hopefully help her earn enough money. We could pay her a little bit for her family to help her maybe re-enroll in school. I don't know. So over the course of the year, as Karima went around with Alyssa reporting on life in Kabul. She interviewed everyone from shopkeepers and coaches, athletes, bakers. She showcased this rich history and these cultural traditions of Afghanistan, as well as just the simple rhythms of city life. And uh, her stories were like windows into this world where people there, they lived beyond the consciousness of the outsiders who'd grown tired of this seemingly endless war. And Karima brought a sense of family and familiarity to really one of the most misunderstood places on earth and like this little sister to all who watched. But anyway, despite the pull of her dreams, Karima's reality, it was dire, the odds of a happy ending unlikely. Just like millions of other Afghans plagued with the unpredictability of life in a war zone, one day the Anwari family, they just kind of disappeared. Their cell phone was disconnected and the home they were living in was just emptied out. 
and numerous attempts by Najib and Alyssa and I to reach them were just fruitless. So now it's 2019. And I've been thinking a lot about Karima lately. It's been exactly 10 years since I first met her and and nine years since she and her family disappeared. And I've just been feeling this pull to talk about my experiences with Karima. And I think it's partly as a way to honor her story. As recently, I visited the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam. And Anne Frank is another 14-year-old girl who is trying to find her dream as she was up against impossible situation of war as well. Uh, But unlike Anne, Karima's video series never sold 10 million copies and led to a museum that attracts over a million visitors annually. I mean, you know, Anne Frank is the ultimate hero to the world. But Karima's story, it still remains largely untold beyond the few schools that use the curriculum, sadly. You know, but I've also been feeling pulled because what's different between now and then for me is now I have a 14-year-old daughter of my own. And things look quite different from my perspective now as the mother of a girl at this age. And I went back and I rewatched the very first introduction video that Alyssa shot at Karima's house, the one where Karima just actually spoke on camera for the first time and introduced the family. And it was just a five-minute video, but it was really more of an intimate portrayal of the Anwari family. And with Alyssa's camera work, Rewatching it 10 years later, I noticed some very significant aspects of their family dynamic that I never picked up on before. You know, while Karima was this heroic and dutiful daughter that made the sacrifices to care for her younger siblings while her parents worked, I noticed there were these glimmers in her eye, little little stories within her eye that said she's kind of a normal teenage girl and not necessarily happy. And uh, I sensed this tension, this slightest eye roll that came across her expression as her mother would correct her from the background while she delivered her report. And just like these fleeting glances that suggested just a hint of annoyance, somewhere between maybe just the resignation of her reality to a life is totally unfair attitude, somewhere in the middle of this she is in. And You know, there was this subtle twist of her mouth as she talked about why she could no longer go to school because she had to take care of these younger siblings. And, you know, she may have assumed all the roles of a parent because someone had to do it, but it's because she had no choice in the matter, you know, and she's still this young girl coming into her formative years and needing to rebel. And the thing is, all teens, it doesn't matter where they are, they go through these similar phases, regardless of their circumstances, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're in safety or in a war zone, they have a need for independence. It's part of growing up. They need to develop a separate identity from that of their parents. They need to test authority. They need to think their parents are embarrassing or stupid or whatever. It's part of growing up. And it's actually also linked to developmental changes in the brain that eventually help them become analytical and successful adults. And uh, yeah, during these teenage years, this prefrontal cortex of the brain, the thinking cap or judgment center, is where teens are developing their own ideas and ideals. And so now I'm really seeing this connection to Anne Frank, you know, more than just another 14-year-old girl struggling to survive a war that was working against them. You know, Kareem is just a normal teenage girl. She had a complicated relationship with her mother. You know, Anne, Anne had a complicated relationship with her mother. She was interested in boys, even though she was imprisoned in this impossible situation. And too, she was at that age where teenagers question everything and everyone, and uh, they begin to form their own opinions and judgment. 
And also, like Karima, who wanted to be a reporter to help the world understand Afghanistan from her perspective, and she wanted to be a journalist and hoped that her she hoped that her wartime writings would one day be published. I learned that uh, Anne was ins- even inspired to edit her own diary uh, after hearing a radio broadcast from her hiding place urging the Dutch people to keep journals and letters that would help provide a record of what life was like under the Nazis. So the thing is, these 14-year-old girls wanted to change the world. And, you know, back to Karima and her situation and being a teen, she'd have every right to be pissed off. She has every right to be resentful of her parents. She's not only the one who has to raise these children, which is an overwhelming responsibility that is continually falling upon her shoulders. But, you know, I'm thinking about how must she feel discovering every time her parents had another child. You know, it's like another nail in the coffin of her own dreams. Every time her parents have another child, she's the one who's got to raise them. She's already got you know, three little ones to take care of all day. And what if they have more? This girl has no voice. But the other thing that I realized for my own 14-year-old daughter and where her generation is at today is that the the definition of war zone now for 14-year-olds isn't necessarily where the literal bullets are flying. According to current research from uh, especially both the U.S. and the U.K., one in four girls is clinically depressed by the time they turn 14. And even in these quote-unquote peaceful countries, teen girls are growing up in a war zone of bullying and the pressures created by social media. It's causing increasing mental health difficulties, especially in comparison to previous generations. And, you know, their symptoms include everything from just feeling miserable, tired, and lonely and depressed, but it's leading to this alarming rate of self-harm and suicide. So whereas Anne Frank is worried about dying from the Nazis, and Karim is worried about dying from the Taliban, these American girls are dying from their own hand, which is quite ironic. Anyway, despite having constant connection to others through social media and the digital world, the feelings of social isolation among teenage girls are increasing. They're constantly comparing themselves to others, which increases feelings of loneliness and, and unworthiness. They're just not good enough. And adding to that stress is the fact that parents too often underestimate the extent of, or they fail to pick up on the signs of this depression. Part of this is we adults, we're busier than ever. We've got our own screen addictions that demand constant attention. Every buzz reminds us of our importance. And and uh, adults, we too often attempt to assuage our guilt with this false perception that our kids, they should be the happiest and the most content. And, you know, they've got so much connectivity and they're always on their phones and so will be on ours. And what it does is it causes parents to just start interacting less and less with them. And it just becomes a, a very destructive pattern. And the reality is a lot of that connectivity with among the kids and their friends, it's disconnecting them from real friendships and opportunities to enjoy the world together. And it's disconnecting them from their parents too. And just like Anne and Karima, you know, they were socially isolated, but this kind of social isolation, it it has consequences on the brain and relationships with teenagers and their ability to make sense of the world. There's a powerful PSA, which is actually a short film. It's called I'm Here Too, and it's aimed at teen suicide prevention. And while it's painful to watch, it perfectly captures this very common and growing story among teens and teen girls. As for Karima, I think she's having this profound effect on me because, you know, as adults, no matter how busy we are, we do need to remind ourselves, you know, wasn't there ever a time in our lives when even though we were 
young. We wanted a voice too. We just want to talk freely about our ideas or the world or just to have someone listen to me. And one of the last things that Karima said on that introduction video is she said, thank you for listening to my story. And the first time I heard it, it just sounded like a nice little wrap up. But now as I'm really watching it again 10 years later, and the deeper meaning, she really meant it. That was her opportunity, not just to be a reporter, but to have people listening to her and treating her like the teenage girl that she was at that time. We need to spend time with our girls and listen when they say they need to talk. We need to communicate with them, not just times of disapproval or discipline or telling them to get dinner on, uh, but when we're proud of them and when they did a good job. Well, we may never know what happened to Karima. She'd be 24 years old now. I just continue to feel inspired by her spirit and the many lessons that she continues to teach me about the world, about family, about 14-year-old girls, and the important role they play in all of it. I'm Dina Fessler. If you'd like to subscribe to the GSD Escape and hear more podcasts like this, just go to gsdnetwork.net.